Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DiBiaz. Tonight's guest is author David Sumner. David lives in Anderson, Indiana, and was a former professor of journalism at Ball State University, located in Muncie, Indiana, for 25 years. Uh, Ten years ago, he released his first book, Feature and Magazine Writing, followed in 2017 by a biography of Georgia politician John Thraser. In 2018, he wrote his first book on college football titled Fumble Call, which deals with the mysterious Bear Bryant Wally Butts football scandal, which took place during the early 1960s. And in 2021, he released his latest his work, Amos Alonso Stag, College Football's Greatest Pioneer, a first-rate book, which is available in Kindle and paperback at Amazon. David, welcome back to the show. It's an honor and privilege to have you back. Thank you. I was uh, very flattered that you gave me an invitation to come back on your program. You're always welcome, David, always. Uh, I'd like to start off by asking you, what led you and your collaborator, Samir Husni, to write the book Feature and Magazine Writing? Well, it, 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 this is the second edition. I wrote the first edition in 2010, uh, and it's basically a history of American magazines from 1900 up to the present. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I had an unsolicited request from the publisher to write a second edition. And so I decided to do that, but I felt like I needed to, to find a co-author to help me because I haven't kept up in detail with what's happening in the industry in the last 20 years. So Professor Husney, he's also known as Mr. Magazine, and he has a website, mrmagazine.com. And he's a consultant and frequent speaker at magazine conferences, uh, also very well known in the magazine industry. So, uh, yeah, it was their invitation to do it. The, the book has been, it hasn't been a huge seller, but it's been influential. And uh, it's been, um, you can go to Google Scholar, it's been cited in 150 books or journal articles or dissertations in 15 countries. So it's been influential. Um, but not a huge seller, a modest sales. David, please tell our listeners, how old is the concept of the magazine? Uh, who were the forefathers or father or forefathers of magazine publishing and writing? Well, in, in America, in the U.S., uh, the first magazines were published in 1741. Mm -hmm. uh, Benjamin Franklin was one of those founders. He published, he was, you know, he started out as a printer. He owned a printing shop in Philadelphia. Uh, and he published, it's called the General Magazine and, and Historical Chronicle. Uh, just a couple of months after that, Andrew Bradford, who was a competitor in Philadelphia, wrote a uh, published called the American Magazine or a Monthly View of the Political State of the British Colonies. It, the first magazines were published in England 50 years before that, and in, um, in 1691. But um, after that, they, you know, they steadily grew in numbers. Uh, in the 1800s, they really, they really came into their own as a big influ uh, influence in American life and culture. When exactly did magazines become a mass market public commodity? Um, I would say in the 1990s to 1900s, there were three publishers who were influential in making a mass commodity 
uh, publisher of one called Muncie's Magazine. It's spelled different from the city Muncie. Muncie's Magazine, McClure's, and Cosmopolitan, which wasn't the same magazine it is today, but they created the new business model. They dropped the price of their magazines uh, to something like 10 cents or 12 cents, which was less than the cost of publishing. And so then they thought, well, we can depend on advertisers. And that's exactly what happened. It, it, before that, magazines were, were mainly read by the wealthy and the highly educated, and the cost of magazines were very high. And most average middle income or lower income Americans could not afford magazines. And so they created low cost magazines and uh, depending on advertisers. From then on, almost up to the present, magazines, I mean, advertisers have paid for more than 50% of the cost of magazine publishing. David, were the early magazines of the late 19th century mostly catering to male audiences or? When it, or when and when did may magazines start to cater to female audiences, female readers? Um, I would say, yeah, it's probably mainly uh, up until the mid un, until the 1870s. Uh, they were mostly men, but there were three influential magaz women's magazines. Ladies' Home Journal was started in 1883. Woman's Home Companion in 1873, and Good Housekeeping in um, 1885. And so uh, I think Ladies Home Journal was the first magazine to reach a million circulation. That was around 1900. So that was when women's magazines really started becoming popular. David, what were the main topics that late 19th century magazines covered? Was it entertainment, fashion, literature, politics, or all of it? Um, yeah, let me, I've got some notes here and I'll give you some examples. I, I would say overall, overall, Public affairs, uh, including travel, uh, but the, and from three from Ladies Home Journal in June 1900, there was an article called "The Passion Play This Year," and it was about the Oberammergau Passion Play in Germany, its history, description, physical setting. The, another one was in Muncie's magazine called "The Panama Canal." This is in 1900. Uh, before it was built. You know, the French tried to build the Panama Canal and failed and abandoned it in the 1800s. And so this described the conditions of what happened, why it failed, and uh, the hopes of many to try to build another, try again to buy, to build a Panama Canal, which was ultimately um, built and opened about 15 years later. The third example uh, from McClure's magazine article called Governor Roosevelt as an experiment, incidents of conflict in terms of practical politics by Lincoln Steffens, who was a very famous, became a very famous muckraking uh, writer. Yeah. But he was writing about Theodore Roosevelt as governor of New York wow. at that time. Wow. Now, we now come to the first half of the 20th century. What were the key magazines that were established and developed in that the first half of the 20th centuries and who were the key figures who helped develop those magazines i would say um the three most influential magazines and this all happened in the 20s that uh time magazine was started in 1923 by henry luce uh, uh reader's digest was started in 1922 by husband wife team dewitt and lila wallace 
and the New Yorker, I believe it was 1925 by Harold Ross. And, and so those have been three of the most influential magazines. In the 30s, Escar magazine was started uh, in 1933. I think Fortune was started by Henry Luce in 1931 and Life magazine one of the most successful magazines of all time, although it isn't published today, was 1936. So those were three successful magazines started during the Great Depression. Let's talk a little more about Henry Luce, because you just mentioned, I mean, he creates time, he creates life, and of course, he even, you know, helped bounce Sports Illustrated. So how colossal a figure was he in the American mass media market? Um, I wrote an article, a chapter for a book about American magazines. It's going to be published by a German company that's publishing profiles, histories of magazines. And I call Henry Luce the most influential magazine publisher um, of the 20th century. Um, the German magazine Der Spiegel said of him in 1961, no one man has over the last two decades more immense, incisively shaped the image of America is seen by the rest of the world and America's image of the world than time and life editor Henry Robin and Luce. Churchill called him among the seven most powerful men um, in the United States. So, uh, yeah. So, like you mentioned, the magazine Life, Fortune, Time, Sports Illustrated, and after he died, his company started People Magazine, Money Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, and several others. In fact, if I recall correctly, late Dave Halberstam in his magnificent work, The Powers That Be, featured Time Magazine as one of the key four media outlets that he examined in terms of its influence in American culture and American politics, if I yes, recall I correctly. Remember. I think I read that uh, a long time ago. First but, rate uh, book, a magnificent, one of yeah, his best works. Book, yeah. When exactly did sports magazines gain a foothold in the American literary consciousness? Well, there were sports magazines um, in the 1880s, 1890s, uh, covering primarily baseball at that time, Sports Week. They did not really gain a foothold until television became popular and widespread and millions of Americans could become sports fans. And so I think certainly Sports Illustrated in 1954 was the groundbreaker in a mass market sports magazine. Uh, uh, it tried to cover all sports in the beginning, but eventually it discovered people were mainly interested in basketball, football, and baseball, yep. and focused mainly on those sports. Who were the key magazine publishers who catered to the non-white populace in America? Well, the best known um, uh, was the founder of uh, Ebony Magazine, John H. Johnson, mm. and Ebony Magazine was... Uh, started about 1942, but he also started Negro Digest in 1942 and Jet Magazine 1951. He launched two magazines for women, Tan Confessions and, uh, and Copper Romance. Uh, so he is the best known, but there were really lots of, a couple of dozen, I, in my book I have a table with, uh, there were 25 African-American magazines with a lifespan of more than five years, mm. published between 1870 and um, 1980. Um, one of the best known uh, 
and still being published is the Crisis magazine, which is published by the NAACP. Mm-hmm. And its first uh, editor was W.E.B. Du Bois, mm-hmm. uh, certainly a well-known author, the first black American to earn a PhD from Harvard. And he edited the magazine for many years until he had a, a falling out with the board and um, went on to teach and do other writing after that. Well, now we now come to the last half, the second half of the 20th century. Let's dealing now with the 1960s, the 1970s. In your, in your, based on your research, which magazines were the most influential when it came to exploring counterculture, promoting counterculture, and advocating for social change? Um, I think that's, I'm almost sure that you would. I would give that nod to Rolling Stone, mm. uh, which was started in 1967 by Jan Winner, spelled W-E-N-N-E-R. Yep. Uh, I mean, most people are familiar with it. It was really a music magazine, but it evolved into a chronicle of the culture and a leader in the new journalism movement in the in the 1960s. So it would probably be that one. Uh, the Advocate was the first magazine for gay. Americans, and that was also started in uh, 1967, and is still you know, the best-known magazine aimed at uh, the LBGT readers and audience. You mentioned the new journalism. Uh, I know in one of the chapter in your book, you talk about uh, it's I mean, a man named Clem Felker, New York Magazine. Uh, he was very influential in promoting the new journalists and all that new journalism genre. Yes, I interviewed him in the in the nineteen about nineteen ninety six. Really had a fascinating interview with him. He died probably ten years ago. Um, but New York Magazine was originally the magazine insert in the New York Herald Tribune, and the Herald Tribune closed, stopped publishing, and he bought the rights to establish that mag. Now, I want to distinguish it. It's not the New Yorker, but it was called New York. Yeah. And so he launched that magazine, which was called New York, which was also um, a leader in the new journalism movement uh, and um, very influential uh, and interesting man and uh, who recruited many well-known writers of uh, Gloria Steinem was someone he recruited to write for the New Yorker magazine, I mean, the New York magazine. And she went on to be one of the co-founders of Ms. Magazine, MS Magazine in the, in the 1970s. Uh, where would you put Joan Didion? Was she writing for any of those key magazines during that time period? The late Joan, uh, she, she died, yes, didn't she? The she, Joan Didion. She, she wrote for Vogue magazine. She wrote for Saturday Evening Post. She certainly is called is is one of the key uh, key writers in the new, new journalism movement. Although she went on to write mainly books, and was a very gifted and um, sensitive writer, um, and she's well known for her last book. What was it? The Year of Treading Softly. She yeah. wrote it after her husband died yeah. several years ago. Yeah. Um, anyway, that was one of her books. But she was certainly a great writer. And yet, when you were doing your research, of all the great writers, not just the publishers, we're not talking about the great magazine writers, who do you think, give us a few names, who do you think were the most impactful and influential magazine writers, you know, from starting from the late 19th century up, up, you know, all throughout the 20th century up to the present time? Can you name some names? 
Yeah, I'd say Joan Didion was in that. Uh, uh, two, two of the top of the list, I would say John McPhee and Gay Talese. Mm. Um, and I believe both of these, no, I think John McPhee has died, but I think Gay Talese is still, I have interviewed him. Yeah. He originally was a writer for the New York Times, and he wanted to do more in-depth feature writing, and he went on to write for Esquire and the New Yorker, many more magazines. Hunter Thompson was one of those writers. Yes. Um, um, going back much earlier, I think one of the most influential women writers, Ida Tarbell, who was one of the muckraking writers, yes. and uh, wrote the big expose of, of Standard Oil Company that really brought the company down in, in a lot of ways, but she was working for McClure's Magazines. Uh, there was also Lerone Bennett, who is not as well known, but I recently reviewed a biography of him. He wrote for Ebony Magazine, and he wrote dozens, dozens of articles on African-American history mm. for Ebony Magazine between um, the 1950s and I think the 1970s or 1980s. So he was another influential writer as well. Would you say the uh, Hugh Saidi, remember with his, for decades he was writing his columns about the American presidency. Would you say he was influential as well, Hugh Saidi for Time Magazine? I remember the, yeah, I remember reading some of his articles. I'm just not as familiar with him. Um, I could not put him in that category, just maybe out of my own neglect, but I haven't read him. But certainly, um, the other writers, uh, I think I associate Hugh Saidi mainly with Time. Yeah. But but the others that I've mentioned wrote for more than one magazine, or you know, wrote for at least two or three different magazines, and wrote books as well. Okay. Let's talk about the present time. In your opinion, who are the key magazine publishers of today? Well, there's been a lot of turbulence in the industry in the last uh, 20 years, and uh, for example, Time Incorporated, founded by Henry Luce, is no longer in existence. I mean, many of its magazines are, they dissolve the company. The largest magazine publisher, comp publishing company is Meredith Publishing in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. And just coincidentally, I was had a tour of the company about in July. I came back from Iowa and stopped in Des Moines and had arranged a tour but Meredith Publishing publishes some of Times, it publishes People Magazine, uh, Better Homes and Gardens, Southern Living. It publishes 54 digital and print titles. It is America's largest uh, magazine publisher at the time, at this time. And uh, it, it changed ownership about two years ago. It was no longer, it's no longer a, a public company. It was bought by a company called Dot Dash, and it's now called Dot Dash Meredith, which I think is a real weird name, and I can't use, get used to saying that, but it was uh, Dot Dash on the website about.com, and, you know, it's one of these uh, investment companies, uh, I don't know, you know, into finance, I can't explain, okay. I don't know much about the company, but it's, it's, not, okay. it's not the public company like it used to be. The other one is Condé Nast, C-O-N-D-E-N-A-S-T. Yeah. Condé Nast was a man who published magazines in the 1930s, 1920s, who uh, founded uh, the company. So uh, that's uh, the other largest company in the U.S. today. And um, 
right now I'm having kind of a brain blip. I can't okay. name That's all okay. the magazines, that, but it's, it publishes at least, I think, 18 or my book has a list of all the magazines. That mm-hmm. And I've been to the archives at Condé Nast, and um, I was thinking about writing a biography of um, Condé Nast, but I did go to the archives there around 2009 when I was writing the um, first edition. I looked at, read some of his papers and correspondence and other historical information. But, uh, you know, Cosmopolitan, I know that's uh, one of the Condé Nast magazines right now. Given the advent uh, of the Internet, in your opinion, do you think magazines are becoming an endangered species? Well, that's a good question. And, uh, uh, you know, I could write at least a long article about that, (laughs) but I'll try to sum it up with some figures. They're not endangered in the sense that they're not going to disappear, but the industry is shifting around. But here are some surprising figures that I have in the book, which uh, most people would be surprised. I listed uh, 25 magazines, 25 leading magazines, best known magazines that most people, and I listed the circulation in 1990 and their circulation in 2021. Out of those 25 magazines, 17 have gained circulation Mm. and Eight have lost circulation. Overall, the average gain for those 25 magazines is about a 12, 13% gain overall in print circulation. So that doesn't sound like magazines are an endangered species. Many people associate, well, whatever's happening in newspapers must be happening to magazines. I would say newspapers are an endangered species. But the nature of the composition and the purpose of magazines is really very different from newspapers. They're really aimed at niche audiences who are very dedicated to that topic and that subject, and they like reading the print magazines. So the dynamics are very different than for newspapers. David, please tell our listeners, where can readers find this book, Feature and Magazine Writing? Where can they find it and buy it? Yes. Um, the, the book was officially published yesterday, <laughs> so it's it's not on Amazon yet, but it is on the company's website. It's Peter Lang, P-E-T-E-R-L-A-N-G. Now, this is an international company with offices in New York and London and uh, Zurich and even uh, even in Germany, but it's PeterLang.com, and if you go to go to the that website and just type in the magazine Century. Um, it'll it'll turn up. You can see you can publish it there from the company. Probably it'll be on on Amazon in the near future, but it's not yet. David, what will be your next book project, and when can we expect its release? Well, that's <laughs> I need I need to give a little personal information to explain why I'm writing this book because uh, I'm a Floridian, fifth generation Floridian. Uh, my father, grandfather two grandfathers and great-grandfather were all citrus growers. And so I grew up in that industry and rural, and rural, well, not too rural, but in north of Tampa, St. Petersburg. So I'm writing about uh, the rise and fall of Florida's citrus industry mm. uh, from 1865 to the present. Mm. It's uh, kind of been sad to watch what's happening because Florida's citrus production this year will be the lowest since 1944. And that's due to a whole lot of factors, uh, economic, scientific, diseases, hurricanes, 
Um, it's a huge project. I'm expecting it'll take three, four years at least because I'm having to amass information from so many sources, historical, scientific, geographical, mm. but I'm loving it. I'm really enjoying writing it, but I feel like I'm connecting to my roots in a way that I haven't done um, since I was growing up in Florida. Is it like an oral history or is it more like an environmental study or a combination of the two, David? It's, it's really a, uh, a history uh, of how the industry, there was no very little citrus growing in Florida, very few grows until after the Civil War. And the, the industry was really created by northern investors and northern people who drew, moved to Florida. It's called an orange fever. It's kind of like a gold rush. Everybody thought they could make a lot of money growing oranges in Florida, and many of them did for many years, but it's, it, the industry's had a, it's not a steady rise. It's been a lot of up and down over the years. The peak was in 1998. The large highest production came that year. It's been declining, um, but it's basically about the people, the pioneers, uh, you know, and the innovations, the inventions, and you know what made it popular, how it created the, the, the image of the Sunshine State. Uh, it's, a, it's a cultural, it's more of a cultural history uh, than anything else. So I'm having fun with it. David, I want to thank you so much for appearing on the show. Again, it's always an honor and privilege to have you on. And I can't wait to have you on again, especially when you come up with your new release or whatever. In fact, I'd love to interview you again about that book, Fumbled Call, about the Bear Bryant-Wally Butts scandal and all that. I'd yeah, love to talk to I'd you about to that. I'd love to talk about that some more. That was a real underpublicized uh tragic event really yeah uh, maybe maybe in the next fall you know next year but we can we talk when the college football season starts we can talk about yeah that, be okay? happy to yeah yeah uh, uh, david you and your family have a blessed and wonderful christmas stay warm amidst this this winter storm here and uh, you yeah. take care okay thanks so much Rick. appreciate your time bye. take care okay bye-bye Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing sports author Bruce Markison. And uh, just a reminder uh, that my book, Lords of the Great Iron Two, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches, is still on, up on sale. It's available on Amazon, and it's on sale at 30% off and will remain on sale until after Super Bowl 57 is played in mid-February. Thank you, good night, and Merry Christmas.